Hey, everybody. It's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Cool. So quick background on myself. My name is Eric Tornberg. I'm a entrepreneur and investor. I've been early at a couple companies. One of them was Product Hunt, which was a discovery platform for startups, which sold to AngelList. When I left Product Hunt, I co-founded a firm called Village Global, which is trying to be a fully network-driven venture firm. And we are trying to innovate in sort of two key ways as it relates to networks. One is through RLP base. Typically, LPs are investors in funds, and typically LPs are often institutions like pension funds or university endowments or sort of you know, organizations that are really interesting to, to have involved, but ones that aren't often directly helpful to CEOs and founders on, on a day-to-day basis. And so you know, we ask ourselves, could we build sort of an LP base with some of the CEOs of the biggest and best companies in the world. And might that be interesting to entrepreneurs? One, in terms of the advice they can provide, but more importantly, because they're busy people in terms of the doors they can open up by being associated with them, but, and also by leveraging the companies that they represent. So people who are trying to get in contact with, you know, the right person at Facebook or right person at Pinterest or the right person at Amazon. We constructed our network so that we could, we can do that on the LP base. And we spent a couple of years doing that. The other way we tried to innovate on, on venture, venture as a network, is through how we invest. So most firms, the way they invest is sort of five people, Sand Hill Road, Masters of the Universe, you know, saying, hey, we have all the information, we'll, we'll, we'll make all the investments. And we said, could we open it up and invest through a network by investing through the, the edges of a network to find, instead of five people making decisions, could we decentralize our investing by having dozens of people make investment decisions, people with different domain expertise, like, like Jared and digital health and bio people with who are in key geographies that we want to be investing in. And they're the best angel in that network or people in key companies. We, we might say, Hey, we think Palantir has some really interesting entrepreneurs. We want to get the best angel investor in, in Palantir. Or we think Serbian entrepreneurs network might be a very, really interesting network. Let's get the right person in there to be represent us and invest on our behalf. So we built those two assets. And what, one of the things we've tried to do is reimagine the accelerator experience. And I've been through a few accelerators and I'm big fans of accelerators like Y Combinator, like Expa, like NFX, there are a bunch of, a bunch of great ones out there. What we tried to do is, is innovate again in a couple of ways. One is through being personalized rather than programmatic. Um, so we don't think that every company needs to fundraise after three months. You know, different companies have different timelines. Some want to focus on really nailing product market fit. Some want to focus on really getting customers. Uh, some want to focus, Hey, what idea am I pursuing? I don't want to rush into, into a demo day like format. If, if I don't know if this is the perfect idea. So we want flexibility on, on timing as well as on, on geo. We don't think you need to be in San Francisco the whole time in order to, <laughs> in order to have a successful company. And the other thing we tried to innovate on is, is connections over content. We tried to work with sort of entrepreneurs who are pretty experienced and who you've either done this before, either on a founder level or just on an operator level and don't necessarily need that sort of classroom structure, but more want to leverage, leverage their network. So or leverage our network to help them get customers or help them get key hires or, or co-founders in some cases, or really say, Hey, who are the best investors that I can add to my, to, to my company? Uh, not just the ones that will, that will give me money, but the most strategic. So thematically, those are some of the ways that we've, um, 
we've decided to differentiate our accelerator. And, and as of right now, we've tried to have enough network leaders so that we could have, you know, bring the perfect advisors to different companies based on skill set, expertise, and, and those companies' needs. So with that, that's a brief introduction on, on Village Global. I'd like to pass it off to Jared Seifer, who's one of our network leaders. And I'd like to hear from Jared what your experience has been like working with Verisim, one of our companies, first company in our accelerator, and then also what you look for when accepting and advising Village Global Accelerator companies. So I'm Jared Seehofer, as Eric said. I'm the CEO and co-founder of a company called Enzyme. We're a software startup that automates the process of getting FDA approval and compliance. So people and companies who build regulated product have a uh, huge burden they've got to go through. And so we make that simpler. Prior to that, and sort of why I have expertise to help out Village and the Village team is I spent about 12 years working in the biopharma medical device spaces, selling into health systems, doing product development. So I kind of come to the table with a couple of things, one being a pretty big and deep network across the healthcare system, a lot of experience in seeing how and why startups fail, and a lot of experience in sort of the translation matrix between entrepreneurs who are really, really smart technologists and know a lot about their technology, the clinical need they're trying to solve, and helping communicate the business value either to investors or to payers. Because without that translation, you get the greatest technology in the world. doesn't go anywhere. And it's especially difficult in something like biotech or some of these new digital health technologies because it can be largely over a lot of people's heads. So you, you were talking about Verisim. So uh, the founder that was coming into Verisim, and so I was kind of fantastic fit, was very much in line with what I was just talking about. Founder's a brilliant, brilliant scientist, great idea, fantastic unmet clinical need. They're out to replace how we do preclinical studies. So every new medical technology, for the most part, you've got to do studies on animals before we can test on people. It's a great idea, right? You don't want something that is potentially harmful being tested on people as a first run. Well, there are not only sort of tactical considerations of doing that, there are also ethical considerations of doing that, particularly for some of the riskier products that get built. You want to test that on primates, and that bothers a lot of people and for very good reason. And so with new advances in, in machine learning, there's a potential for creating simulated models that would allow us to essentially go away or do away with the idea of testing on animals at all. Fantastic opportunity. It's also something that wasn't apparent in the pitch that that was what was going on. Uh, when I was kind of coming in and being someone who's a domain expert, I read this and I see immediately, okay, Show me the data because if the data, the early data is here, I know how to help this founder better communicate her vision. And, and that's sort of the, the process getting back to what Eric was talking about of the sort of personalization of the experience. Sometimes it's a network connection. Sometimes it's like, okay, I need to, I need to get warm intros to these people in order to close something in order to get to my next milestone. Sometimes the technology is there and it's really just a function of, Hey, I need to get access to capital. And for some reason, I'm saying things and I think I'm pitching something. It's just not <laughs> resonating. So can can I get some help in terms of better better communicating and better refining that story so it, so it resonates with people who don't come to the experience with a PhD or 10 to 15 years experience in the domain? In terms of what to what I sort of look for in advising Eric and his fellow partners on what I think is going to be a good experience, excuse me, a good investment for the fund, there are really kind of a couple of things. 
One, this concept of founder market fit, I think, is incredibly important in healthcare. It's actually quite rare to see a successful healthcare startup make it to the big leagues without the founder having some prior experience. They don't necessarily need to be a physician or a scientist or work for a big company, but you have to have some experience with it, working within it prior to doing the entrepreneurial journey because it's healthcare is such a specific thing. There's only one, one exception I can think of, which is, which is recent, which is Flatiron and, and hats off to those guys because they sort of hit, hit a home run, but 99% of the time you end up in the startup graveyard. So I'm looking for founder market fit. Somebody who has understood the, the unmet need and seems to have the ability to sort of not only navigate the process of solving it, but also know where the minefields are, to know what the challenges are going to be. The second thing is looking for a founder that knows where their blind spots are. That is self-aware enough to know, I, I know I'm rock star and like these three things, and I know I've got the team for these three other things, and these like two or three, I, I need help. Please, please help me. Uh, that's, that's just, you know, my eyes light up when that happens. It's like, good. This is someone who knows what they want. And if there's a matchup between our ability to sort of fill that gap, uh, it's a great experience. What would you say thematically in terms of where are you excited for, on the digital health biotech side in terms of what companies do you think Village would be a good fit for and uh, where are you excited to invest? So the it's kind of cliche around here in the Valley, the famous Andreessen Horowitz mantra that software is eating the world. It took a long time for that to hit healthcare. Uh, it hit other domains a lot uh, more quickly than healthcare particularly in the areas, and again, another cliche, but uh, we got to think again, healthcare, we're like five years behind everyone. Big data is still a sexy concept in, in the healthcare world right now. The idea of applying machine learning and it's in its whatever variant to some specific, some specific targets, like what, what Verison's trying to do on the animal study side, or really anyone who's saying like, we have this great computational capacity that didn't that didn't exist in really a commodity form even just three or four years ago. And we have this way of creating generalized models on pretty much anything. What can we do and, and what can we do in sort of the healthcare workflow to add automation and process simplification there? I think there's going to be a ton of opportunity there. And, you know, getting back to Village Global and why that, I think that's, that generally, I think you could get pretty much any investor to say like, yeah, that's okay, fine. But there's sort of an intersect that I'm looking for in terms of making advice to the fund where software has to be sort of a core differentiator because of where it's located, where the network is, how everyone can help. Software has to be something that is going to be the difference. Software expertise or doing well in software, even if it's not the core product between the company being a success or being a failure. Because it's one place where you guys can add a lot of value to a life science entrepreneur who might know a lot about their particular sort of domain in life science, but might have blind spots in software. Totally. So we have Nancy here, CEO of RDMD. The great segue is founder market fit. Can you describe a little bit of your background, mm-hmm. Ono's background, and how you began to start RDMD? Yeah. So um, 
at RDMD, we're basically trying to generate better clinical data for rare disease research. So we get that from hospitals, from patients, from foundations, and it's all unstructured. And we turn it into structured data for pharma and for researchers. And so it's kind of, you have to engage patients, you have to engage pharma, you have to understand the needs of every kind of stakeholder in that world. And so my background, so I, I studied uh, genetics in, in college at Penn. I then became an investment banker on Wall Street. <laughs> so I did research for all four years and then kind of turned to the dark side. And so I was a biopharma banker on Wall Street for a number of years. Really loved it. Came out to Silicon Valley where I grew up and worked in private equity and healthcare, the healthcare space. And was most recently head of corporate development at 23andMe. Did a lot of BD stuff, but then also build the product or help build the product for our next generation sequencing efforts and drug discovery. And so, yeah, kind of really saw the intersection between like consumer and pharma and really wanted to bridge that gap for a long time. And there's a big gap. <laughs> and so my, I, I met my co-founder, Anno, about a year ago through a mutual friend. And we were both, I had quit my job then to work on some ideas. He had sort of kind of left his last startup as well. He has an amazing background. So he's an engineer. He's a product guy. He's been starting companies since he was in high school. I uh, started his first tech company there in the Netherlands. And then he brought his latest company out here, which was a social media start- startup called TapTalk, kind of like a video messaging service. Which used to work out of the product on office. <laughs> yeah. And they're kind of like Snapchat, but, you know, not Snapchat. Um, <laughs> and so when he moved to the Bay Area, he actually got diagnosed with a rare disease himself called neurofibromatosis type 2. And so patients develop these benign tumors in their central nervous system, which is nuts. And he has a slightly milder form of that. Uh, he was diagnosed in his 30s, but, you know, nevertheless changed his life. And so it caused him to reconsider, you know, what he wanted to work on. And he's really great at just starting things. And so um, we're a really great fit, I think, for each other because we there's not like one thing that we're both good at. <laughs> so he he loves to just, you know, take something, prototype it. And I'm kind of the ones like saying it'll never work. It'll never work. You know, this is the business reason for that. Um, so, yeah, together, I kind of manage all of the pharma, BD, regulatory, clinical, and he works on product, patient engagement, kind of the consumer product, as well as the kind of mission for the company. Cool. I'm going to ask you what your journey has been since we, since we found you and invested you guys, found you, discovered you <laughs> since we met and invested in you guys. But I'm going to let you think about it for a couple minutes. So I'm going to ask, uh, Amrita, could you describe your, your background a little bit and what inspired you to start Sathi and why you were the, why founder market fit was, was great in your case as well? Yeah, for sure. Um, so my background is, uh, so first of all, Sathi, we are a next generation consumer packaged good company focused on zero chemical, zero plastic consumer absorbance. So sanitary pads, diapers, um, adult incontinence products, et cetera. And so my background is that I went to MIT, I studied mechanical engineering, joined Procter and Gamble after undergrad and worked for Always pads, Pampers, Gillette. So worked on all, um, all the products that I'm now working on. Um, and really it was at that time where I realized that we were just pumping in so many chemicals and so much plastic into these products and there had to be a better way to do it. Left P&G. I worked as an automation and design engineer when I was with Procter and Gamble. Went to HBS to get my MBA and then I joined Google X in the early days to build out the factories for Google Glass. So it spent time doing product development building out factories and then really kept going back to the idea that I really think consumer absorbents need to be done in a better way um, and partnered with a friend of mine from college who had been working as a hardware engineer. And that's how we started Sati. 
Awesome. So I'm going to ask you this open-ended question, and then I want to open it up to Tiho or, or the audience for the wider Q&A. When, when did we invest? October? Mm-hmm. November. November. Yeah. Why don't you talk about your experience from November up till now, just mm-hmm. in terms of how the company's evolved, lessons learned? What can you tell us about your, your journey? Yeah. When you found us in November, we had um, <laughs> little, we were just kind of, you know, learning and kind of, we didn't really have a business model, even though we told you, told you we did. Lesson, then, lesson number one. <laughs> and so it was really a great kick in the pants to kind of just have a little bit of structure going and have that accountability to just, you know, get some milestones on on the road and start selling and, and really getting to New York customers. Um, I remember that was one of the earliest kind of like aha moments when we were meeting with Ross, uh, one of the partners at uh, Village. And this was, I think, in like January. We were like, oh, maybe we should go fundraise. Like, you know, what, now's not a bad time. We we got a lot of patients on the platform. They really love it. And Ross was like, oh, well, what's the business model? <laughs> like, oh, you know, pharma, obviously. And he's like, well, you have to be able to articulate that very clearly. You have to feel, you know, the confidence in your voice when you say that pharma is going to buy this data, you know. And so he's like, I think you should just go out and sell, you know. So we... We were talking to pharma. We weren't really selling. And so that kind of kicked us in the pants to go sell and really just, I mean, then we talked to, I think, 70 different biotechs just went on the road. And that helped a lot to distill down how would we would even build the product, how we would even go to market and things like that. And so that really helped a lot in our, in our fundraise when we did go out in late April. And so I think in healthcare, it's really tough because people, when they, when they see you, they're always skeptical. They're always like, what is the business model? Because so many companies have tried to create something that's useful for the consumer or useful for one stakeholder, but couldn't monetize off of it. And so us being able to clearly articulate specific people at at Amgen who we talked to who said that they would pay this price for this exact piece of data just kind of got the investors very confident uh, and ourselves confident as well. So that was kind of like a really big learning. Yeah, often... Paul Graham may have said this, said that the best fundraising advice is to believe that you are worthy of investment and then tell other people about it. And, and you guys did the work to, to make that happen. So this is where you can be a little immodest. So talk about your your fundraising experience with three weeks. <laughs> it was like, a, yeah, around that. Talk about what uh, what that was like. Yeah, so we we kind of just fell into it because uh, we kind of met with one investor and then we we're like, okay, okay, we're investing now, I guess. Um, so Fundraising. Oh, sorry, fundraising. Yeah. And so basically just emailed everyone we knew to set up times back to back to back with 40 investors uh, every week uh, because I was told that that's the way that you kind of game the system. <laughs> and so, of course, you need a strong story and you need strong numbers and all of that. But in order to kind of get excitement around your company, you need to have people talking about you. And Village, of course, helped with that too. We'd say, hey, we met with this investor. Uh, what do you think? Uh, can you say some good, nice things about us? And then, you know, that was an exhausting couple of weeks. Um, but then we ended up with a couple term sheets and then we had decided to go with one lead investor, uh, and a bunch of angels and Lux and yeah. it was $3 million. Oh yes. And it was Lux capital led it. Um, they put in two of the three and then we had a filled out the rest with angels. Awesome. And that's why Sasha can't be here tonight because he is doing those 40 meetings <laughs> this week. I mean, do you want to talk about when did we invest? January? January. Yeah. yeah do you want to talk about? Your journey up till now? Yeah, for sure. Um, so when we, when Anne, uh, one of Eric's partners, uh, first met, we met me, uh, we were very much focused on one product and one market. We were making sanitary pads in India. 
there's India has very low usage of feminine hygiene products. So we really thought that was where we were, we were going to be focused and stay in that area. And I really think with Anne and Eric's help, like we started crafting our pitch when we went out to start fundraising. And I realized, I think through, through the first probably like five investor meetings that people were excited about sanitary pads, but they were like, wait, can you, I remember it was my first meeting. Someone was like, I'm not into, I'm not into the feminine hygiene space, but if you could bring this to diapers, that would be like game changer. I, maybe it was just, it was all like male investors and I, I don't know what it was, but I, I think every time we talked about sanitary pads, I was like, eh, not really that interested. But I think, so I think it was like, honestly, I think Anne helped us a lot in helping us figure out like the right way to tell the story and that, and it's that, that it was not just about pads, which is what I had, I mean, my, my, a lot of my career had been in, always pads and really focused on on sanitary pads in India and how can we go way beyond that and i think it was through those those early investor meetings that that we then decided okay we have this great technology why why is it limited to sanitary pads why can't we extend it to all consumer absorbents and and we started refining our pitch and that got us our first a couple hundred thousand dollars and then what we ended up doing now what i'm spending my time um is actually building out our diaper line. And I think that is, it's, and looking more and more into it, diapers is a $60 billion market. Um, there is, it's really owned by Procter and Gamble and Kimberly Clark. And, and I think, uh, without Village, I, I'm, I'm not sure we would have made that expansion into, into what we're doing. So I think it had a lot of help with even just like some of the early calls with, People who are just more like friends with Village who could give us good feedback on, hey, is this something we're even interested in or like how could you, how could you find your pitch better? I think, um, that helped us a lot. And yeah, so we're excited with where we are now. Awesome. And you've raised a little bit as well. Yep. Yep. Cool. So. Awesome. Well, I want to open up to questions. Yep. So, I uh, really like hearing from Nancy about how Russ was influential and from Lamita about how Anne was influential, but before you were found. Yeah. <laughs> I really, really liked Anne when I met her. <laughs> uh, she was, I had, I met Anne and then I spoke with uh, Eric on the phone and I felt like me and Anne just connected well. She understood what I was trying to do, what my vision was. Um, and I think her kind of explaining how they were going to have more of like a tailored program where it was like, we were, I think the biggest thing for us was that like we were in manufacturing, we were building physical products and especially in Silicon Valley, like it's hard to get the right support and right people who who get that are willing to invest and understand that it takes a little bit longer and, and there's other things. And I think that along with other people that I had met who had heard about Village, it was all very positive. And I think that was that was really what drove and I really liked the way the Network Catalyst program was set up. It was really tailored to what I needed. And I think that was huge. Yeah. I think, uh, when we started, uh, my co-founder Anno had known Eric from kind of product hunt hap talk days. And so he really liked Eric. I really liked Eric. Uh, we met with Ross. He was great. He had a lot of healthcare background. So we really liked that. I think the main decision point was just like the personalization. So not kind of being put in with a hundred other companies and kind of going through, uh, a more, you know, less tailored program. My husband went through YC. I kind of saw that. It was great. Uh, and he kind of, you know, it's grown since then. So I think that's why we chose Village. And it's actually been helping some of our pharma discussions as well because they've heard of, you know, these, these luminaries. <laughs> and so we can kind of, um, just show that there is some credibility there as well in the network. And RDMD has done a very clever thing, which is those global luminaries in the email signature. Which, uh, I'm sure 
opens a lot of doors or helps close uh, the right, right <laughs> sale. I think for us, what we've told, so we have about, I think 11 companies in Network Catalyst program and we're about a year old. So we're picking about a one a month, staying small. And I think what we've told our, entre- our early entrepreneurs is, Hey, we're a startup too. And so we're really willing to go above and beyond and, and really customize experience. And every company that has tried to raise money so far has, has done so, has raised, raised an IC round. And like, like you guys, we're a startup too. And so we want every company to be successful. Great question. How did you, out of those 11 uh, companies, is every investment or is every, is every company a different decision-making process? Are you trying to standardize your decision-making process? Or yeah, it's a, it's a good question. So the question is for the listeners, for those 11 companies, is every, do we have a standard decision-making process or is everyone sort of a new one? I think as of right now, it's been a bit of both. Uh, you know, we have a, we have an application and we are going to have deadline soon. As of right now, it's been more of a rolling basis. In the beginning, it was more of a quiet experience and we sort of channeled through through networks. We are trying to leverage our, and we're building out our network leader program that will help both on the sourcing, diligencing, and supporting side. In the beginning, it was more, you know, I run this network called OnDeck, which is a community for uh, for people looking to start or join their next thing. And there's a lot of people who, you know, engineers at Facebook or Google or, or, or Twitter, and they're thinking of starting something. that So that was right pool of talent for us. And and then it was also personal networks and like Ono, um, who we knew previously. I think as we look to grow a little bit, we are looking to, to standardize a bit more that process. So uh, kind of following up on that, uh, if you're kind of picking that company every month, uh, one of the one of the benefits of some other uh, programs totally. like YC and things like that are like cohorts, right? Like where you learn from like other founders and so on. So how do you think about that? And is, is this like picking one company at the month, just like the artifact of like starting up or is that something that you want to maintain? So I'll say that we, we do have group peer to peer activity because we don't have, it's not a set three month program. You know, our DMD just finished fundraising like last month, you know, they've been working with us since November. So if you join us any month, there'll be a number of companies who are still in the program. Some companies want to fundraise two months after. Some want to fundraise 10 months after. So we definitely try to uh, build that peer-to-peer community regardless of, of when you start. The reason why we pick one a month is because for right now, and that might, that might change over time, is um, because when we go to Lux or Sequoia or Andreessen and say, hey, you should really talk to Formdwell, we want them to really... We don't, you know, respect our, our, our decision and say, Hey, we've invested in this company. We're going to invest in the follow up round. We've worked with them for the last four months. And this is the only company we're bringing to you right now. We're not bringing you a hundred other companies and saying, here's a menu. We're saying you should invest in Formwell. And so that's why we've been working with, with one, which is sort of stage, stage of fundraising a little bit. And one more follow up to that. Like, uh, when you speak about the program, uh, I imagine that like the fact that their companies are not going through it together dictates a little bit less structure in the program. So you want to talk a little bit about how the program is structured and what what do companies kind of get out of it? Does sure. They have like, have like sales session and marketing session or is it much more unstructured where they seek advice on whatever they need? It's a bit of both. So the question is um, structure versus unstructure. And we've borrowed a bit from, from YC and some of the others in terms of group office hours and individual office hours. It's optional. Most companies do attend and build community that way, get to pick each other's brains, learn from each other, and they are going through it in a similar, you know, if, whether you're three months in our program or one month in our program, you're still going through 
you know, you're trying to figure out product market fit, you're trying to fundraise. So people are still learning from each other. And then individual office hours to meet with me, Ross, Ben, or Anne, or any of the network leaders. And then, so yeah, we do have that structure. What we don't have right now is a, is a demo day because we are manually running sort of individual demo days for, for our companies on their timeline and when it makes most sense for them in a way that makes them look the best as they go out to investors. And then we'll do additional things. Uh, you're asking, what do you get with the program? So we have one company that's selling to heads of growth. So we're throwing a custom event for a hundred heads of growth that we're paying for. We're inviting all the heads of growth. We do a lot of customer development. We're just sort of doing a things that a sort of, you know, massive program would never do, which is if our, if our companies need customers, we go get customers for them. We go throw an event around it. If they need the right advisor, we go get the right advisor. If they need these types of investors, we'll, we'll throw events around it. We'll make content around it. We're really personalizing, customizing experience for, for whatever their, their key goals are. Yeah. I think I remember the second week we were in the program. Uh, Eric said, we're going to have this biotech dinner and, uh, name some CEOs you want there. <laughs> and so one of them showed up and then we ended up meeting them. So that was awesome. Do you have set terms or sizes? How does it, what's the actual? It, it's the exact same as the other uh, programs, which is 120K for 7%. Do you usually uh, recruit companies from a certain industry so they can kind of like work together and help each other solve certain problems? Or it doesn't really matter like which industry you're coming from as long as... You know, you have a promising product. Again, I keep saying a bit of both. I sound like such a diplomat. A bit of both in the sense that we think that there are common problems companies are facing, which is product market fit, trying to raise money, trying to interpret what investors mean when they say no, but don't actually say no. Co-founder relationships, early hires, culture. There's a set of common problems that people face. So I think, and you sometimes get even more insight when you talk to companies that are outside of your space. Allows you to have some, some context. At the same time, domain expertise is really important. And so we try to, so we have companies in all, or in a bunch of different domains. We've done companies. We have a few actually digital health bio companies, but that's more accident than, than anything else. And we try to bring domain experts like Jared uh, or others, we bring in our LPs to help create a custom experience so they have that domain expertise and can ask those you know, key specific questions that are relevant to, you know, that only people that have sold to their customer base would know. So you guys, how do you stay in touch with your companies? Like, do you take board seats or how do you really engage with them? Because I imagine scaling. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. So uh, we don't take board seats we, uh, because it's only 11 and it's five partners. We are on call. <laughs> so can, can, you know, we have individual office hours for those, those who, who want further time. We have group office hours, but we are small enough right now that we can be on call and satisfy any need that are. Eric's just on his phone all the time. Yeah, <laughs> our, our founders need totally. I also feel like you guys do a really good job of like putting putting together like social events like mm-hmm. pretty often. So it's like you're constantly seeing the other portfolio companies and the and the partners, whether in like a formal or informal setting. Yep, we hosted one event where I believe our first six companies uh, got to meet with Reed Hoffman, and uh, he gave them a bunch of uh, you know different advice and in front of each other, so it was, they got to learn from. Just, do you remember what he told uh, either of you? Oh, he 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 talked to me about packaging, and was mm. like, "You got to think about how you want to." <laughs> While he was holding your box. While he was holding it, he was like, ah, "I don't know." <laughs> so, <laughs> yep. Yeah. You know, yeah, we asked him about whether we wanted to expand into more disease areas so we can show replicability, or did we just want to stay in one? And he asked, and he told us, "Well, which one would get you more?" 
patients faster. And so obviously the one that we have, he's like, okay, just nail that one. Totally. And I think someone like Sasha, for, for instance, I think the way we've tried to help him is one, we paired him with a, with a domain expert in the space who's been meeting them once a week for the last few months. Shilpi Kumar, she's, she's fantastic. Her expertise is commercialization. You know, Sasha's an amazing engineer. He's an architect. He's a amazing sort of product builder. And what she has really helped him do is think about business model. And then what we, uh, what Sasha didn't have come because, you know, uh, he's not from here originally is, is this big investor network. You know, who would be the right investors who would be interested in this type of thing, how to communicate with them. What do they say when right now we're doing all like all this back channel every day? He sends me the email. He's like, is this a no? I'm like, yes. <laughs> is this a no? I'm like, maybe, you know, uh, doing it sort of investor communication. I feel like I'm helping a friend who's on a date figure out <laughs> whether she's into him or not. And so we've teamed up both on the helping him think about business model, helping him think about really the whole fundraising process soup to nuts in terms of coming up with the investor list, coming up with this, you know, the right through all the deck and pitch materials, extensive pitch practicing. I think Tasha needed a lot of work there, but he's, he's really become sort of one very convincing in, in his pitch, both knowing the numbers, you know, front to back, obviously he knows the product, he knows the problem space and really communicating both what the big vision is, but then how he's going to break that into you know, component parts and really explain his go to market in a way that you believe not only if it works, it'll be enormous, but he has the right steps to, uh, and the right go to market to, to get there. Uh, I'm going to speak on Sasha's account just a bit because he's not here tonight. Please. So Sasha and I met about a year before he met Eric, uh, and several servants before in this network from New York were actually early backers, either as potential pilot customers or actually investors in the session. And so I hopped on the train as well after I saw the pitch and I saw a demo. And, you know, after becoming an investor, we started you know, talking pretty much on a weekly basis. Uh, Eric was talking about you know, helping Sasha figure out what it means to be an entrepreneur in the U.S. Um, and when it came to Sasha's actually getting to a place where he wanted to actually work on an accelerator and had a couple of offers on the table, he, you know, called me up and said, like, what do you think about Eric's offer? <laughs> And, and what should I do there? And I want to emphasize what Aaron just said there. At that stage, it was fewer companies than 11. It was like five or six. Yep. And Eric's pitch was basically like, look, you're a startup, you're a startup. We're going to grow in you, and you're simply going to get not just our network and our money, but you're also going to get us one call all the time. And Sasha joined in April. I think maybe March, but March, yeah, somewhere there. March or yep. April. All right, so it's been four, four yep. months or so. And I know, number one, now for him, that's been a fact. Awesome. You have been call and it's so great. And they've like completely come through on the premise of, you know, customizing the program, the portfolio, correcting the shilpi, and just like helping him, as you said, you know, really map the investor network and what does it mean to talk to investors. So I think it's been really, really great. And so I'm really glad as somebody who's, you know, back in session that the, the premise of which will also come through. Yeah, that's awesome. And I gotta say, we're, we're immensely grateful to you for not only you know, sourcing that, but also your recommendation carries a carries a lot of weight. So we're really excited to do more deals with you and the Serbian Entrepreneur Network in the future. Yeah, so just so that everybody's aware as well, like apart from those role, pretty much all money is just company serving. So that's awesome. Yeah. So yeah, well, well, if that goes well, then we'll do well. Yes. Uh, we're Serbian Entrepreneurs, I should say, from this group. But yeah, thank you. I think I think that was that was, that was really important to Sasha and. You know, so I would just encourage, like this, in, in this YC cohort at the moment, we actually have two of our members, CEOs, going awesome. through the, the cohort. 
we have John Manila, which was actually his second dog, is doing uh, Play-Doh, which is a design company uh, on demand for startups. Uh, we have first-time uh, CEO at First Level Enterprise, we have Ando for the Paracom, also the CEO of Enterprise. And what was really incredible is that actually people in this group rallied to get to the right partners at YC to get those people people in there. Awesome. Uh, their experience, you know, talking to them quite often, their experience is obviously very different because I don't know what the current batch is, the kind of 20 is odd people versus 11 or less uh, right now for Sasha. So uh, I would just recommend everybody to really think through uh, uh, who you're going to be paired up with, who your mentor is, who your partner is. Uh, and just understanding what the product is. Totally. Awesome. Appreciate that. And next, I'm going to just plug out next event is going to be the YC event. Awesome. Uh, uh, so hopefully we'll get a wonderful session. Awesome. Very cool. Do you guys have like network, I mean, so much of this is contingent on your network and your personal involvement, it's most great. Do you have verticals or areas where you feel like your guys is not stronger than others or some focus or is it just like literally totally not the business? Yeah, it's interesting. It's a good question. I think that, you know, we have about 40 luminaries. CEO is some of the biggest companies in the world. And those companies, you know, are big acquirers, they're big customers, they're big partners. And then... Bill Gates' network is not limited to Microsoft. He's on the board of John Deere and a bunch of other companies. So, I mean, it is pretty wide. We have seen that of, you know, of our first 11, four are like either in digital health or, or biospace. Nancy works at 23andMe and Anne Wojcicki is one of our, one of our LPs. Um, so we have developed a, a and we built out a strong network leader base there as well. So we're, we're keen there. I'm personally, Really in, uh, interested, as as many are in uh, and well networked in in crypto. Um, I incubated a company called Token Daily, which is something like a product hunt or hacker news for for the crypto space. Um, so it can help with distribution and recruiting um, there. But otherwise, it's it's fairly fairly wide. We um, so mentioned a few digital health, biotech, CPG, esports. We're pretty deep there. Real estate technology. We have a, a company that's building Twitch for makeup, um, so some consumer as well. And then, yeah, the, the four GPs are pretty have very di- different experiences. And because we're we're small enough right now that if we're not well networked in the space, we're going to build. You know, we're going to leverage our, our network to really build out that network. It's a great question. Uh, by the way, how many companies are you guys able to take on at this point? And there's only just Yeah. It's a good question. I mean, one a month is pretty stable for us. We, we, I think, you know, we do have uh, five or six network leaders like Jared who, you know, Jared spent an hour a week for three months, you know, so these people you know, spend, spend meaningful time, um, especially the CEO of other companies. Uh, so it's a good question. And we're, we don't know the answer yet. As of, I think as of we're do, we'll do a sort of check-in in a few months to see, see where we're at and see if we want to provide a bit more, I don't know, guardrails in terms of like application process. Cause it is, we're not like, we're not taking like 20,000 applications and we're, a lot of it's through personal networks. A lot of it's 
because we're, we work so closely with these people. We want to see them over a period of time. A lot of it starts on the on deck network is a great way to get plugged in initially. And I really like seeing how people ship over or how people iterate on ideas or, or how people help people work. Cause often we're, we're investing in people at the formation stage. So there isn't like a, a ton sometimes. I mean, I had some traction. Some, some people do, but, um, it's a great question and one where we're evolving and figuring it out and listening to our customers and uh, our founders and seeing you know, scaling with, with their needs and, and how we're doing there. Uh, but I think the opportunity for us is to scale our, our, our network leader base and we'll scale with them. Any other thoughts or questions? Wow. Thank you for taking notes. No, I was thinking, can I ask a question? What do you think of the YC Bio initiative? Yeah. Compared to what you want? Yes, it's YC Bio's new program. I think it's, um, I think it's different price, different terms too. I can't, I can't recall. I'm not as familiar. I'll be eager to see how it, how it comes out, but I think the more the merrier. And I, I think they're fantastic, really smart people. I'm sure it'll be great. One thing I'd ask of you guys is if you can go back to when you were starting your fundraising process, do you have any tips that you would give yourself that are generalizable to a, to a wider audience of, of people starting companies and looking to, looking to fundraise? I have one thing that, um, that I think it took me like a few meetings to get this that I should have, that I, I knew I needed to do, but I didn't quite have it right away was like knowing all the numbers on the top of my head, the unit economics, the margins, my cogs, like everything, just like I had them all there, but to be able to just like rattle them off. I, I think that's something I've been told before, just like know the numbers inside and out. And I think, um, yeah, anyone else, if, if you like, if you, if you even take like a few seconds, people like look at you like, you don't know your numbers on the back of your mind. Like, it's like, no, I don't know what the exact biofilm costs from that one supplier cost. But, um, but I think you really do need to know your numbers. A couple of things, I guess, be open on how much you want to raise and don't really set that in stone in the beginning because you learn a lot from the fundraising process as well. Cause these are smart people who know a lot about the industries too and could give you some really good ideas. And then also, I would, the biggest thing is just pick for the people. Don't pick for price. Don't pick for amount or what, what like brand or whatever. Just pick for the people. We really loved the, the partners at Lux and they spent a lot of time with us. They, you know, personally really love the mission and everything. And so that's kind of why we went with them. Yeah. And it's been really, really great. Awesome. I'm curious, Nancy, because you experimented with a few different co-founders or, you know, you experimented with a while. Um, if you can go back to when you left 23andMe and you were thinking about, you know, new ideas, people you wanted to build something with, what's some advice you would give to, to yourself that might be generalizable to our audience? Yeah. Uh, so I left 23andMe to try to some, start something with someone at 23andMe. And then after that, tried to start something with another person I met through the healthcare network and then found Otto. And so a lot of fits and starts. And so I think the biggest thing is just like, do you like, working with each other, like, do you like each other <laughs> on a personal level? Cause you're going to spend so much time with this person, have the hard conversations up front, like, you know, values are the biggest thing where you want, how fast you want to grow the company, what kind of a company you want to grow. It's like all of the, you know, getting married questions, like go through every single one of them, even though if you're like, ah, this is weird. Like, you know, we don't even know each other that well yet. Of course we took some time to get to know each other several months before we started even having those kind of conversations. Yeah, because this is really important when you don't align on values or you don't align on your vision or how to start a company. I think what's really interesting about your relationship with Ono is that you haven't known each other for 10 years. 
And often there's a trope in startup land that's you should build a company with your high school friend or something. And, you know, the founders of Coinbase met on Reddit and the founders of STEM centrics were roommates on Craigslist. And you guys met, you know, just a few months before you started a company. So I think there are different ways in which, you know, co-founding teams can be successful. Mm-hmm. What do you think it was about Ono that, how did you see right away that, oh, this is going to be a fit? Yeah, I would say just find someone complimentary to your skill set because there's so much to do at a startup. Like one extra skill is so like it means the difference. And so, uh, like I mentioned before, we have no overlapping skill sets <laughs> and the things that I'm afraid of, he's not afraid of the things he's afraid of. I'm not afraid of. Uh, so it's just like the perfect kind of working relationship. And I think on top of that, he's, he's just a very open, generous person. Uh, and we talk about our feelings a lot. I think people in the world don't talk about feelings enough. Uh, and so every week we talk about our fears, we talk about our feelings and anxieties, and then we start what we want to plan and prioritize for that week. And I think ultimately it's just, you kind of, he has no ego either, which is great because that's kind of one of the most dangerous things in a startup. If you let ego get in the way, and if you can put that aside, you can just solve anything. And so we can be really honest with each other uh, and just kind of, yeah, work, work through like what is reality and um, how we should go about that. Um, and I'm curious from your end, then I'll open it back up for questions. The idea of Sadly, what's your advice for, for entrepreneurs out there who are, who know they want to start a company soon, but don't yet have the, have the right idea, like the idea formation or problem space or product, like what's your, what's your advice there? I think the biggest thing that is like just going and talking to people. I think that has been like immensely valuable. Like even when I was like unsure in the beginning, like do we really want to start it? I mean, it was just like talking to everyone that I could find like within PNG, um, people just generally who had started e-commerce companies. I think it got more and more refined. Or, or honestly, even if you just don't even have an idea, it's just like entrepreneurs that you admire and hearing their journeys and their stories and how they kind of came together, I think – is huge, um, especially in the early days when you don't know what you're doing, you don't quite have an idea, you don't quite have a team, you don't really have a plan. And I think the other thing, the 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 one thing is like people often are like a little nervous to talk about their ideas. They're like, oh, someone else can like take it or like it's not really formed yet. Or uh, but honestly, like I think that ideas are everywhere. It's all about the execution. And the more you're willing to like openly talk about your ideas and get feedback, I think it only makes your idea stronger and helps you succeed quicker. Any other questions? You, you talked about some value misfits and stuff like that. But it sounds like you went through a few iterations of like picking co-founders, or maybe I misunderstood that. But if you did, maybe you can answer this. Uh, what were some value misfits, for example, and how did you discover that that uh, helped you uh, not pick? Something? It wasn't really necessarily a huge value misfit. I guess it was. We just never had any of the hard conversations, so we weren't aligned on expectations for where you want to take the company. I guess it would be just commitment and, you know, how long you want to work on this thing before you stop. Because <laughs> that's the hardest thing in a startup. You, you can't really have that mentality. If you have that mentality, then you're going to stop because you're going to hit some wall, many walls. And uh, that's what another thing that I really loved about Anna is just there was no way that he wouldn't work on this problem. It just this would be here forever. And that created a lot a sense of comfort for me because I knew that no matter what happened, no matter what, you know, couldn't sell to this pharma company or whatever, he wouldn't leave me <laughs> or abandon me because that's really tough to try to convince your your own co-founder to to stay. So it has to be kind of your all in from the start and have that that mentality. Otherwise, it's just really tough. 
Um, and I think what helped for you guys is you, the, you know, Ono's solving his own problem. Like mm-hmm. you guys are both so mission driven that you, mm-hmm. you know, have that alignment there. I think what, what we see a lot of co-founders do is sort of fall into a startup idea. They'll sort of be on this side, you know, experiment and then someone offers them money or, or they have some sort of traction and they don't have the hard conversations initially about what does success look like? If we sell for $30 million, is that success? If we, you know, what sort of culture do we want to have? And then things sort of progress and then it comes to a point where their misalignments become apparent and then that's when conflict happens. And I think that, you know, if you're lucky enough to have an investor offer or some traction or something that you, you fell into, I would still make sure you have those tough conversations because you don't want to set yourself up for, for big conflict. Because that's the biggest reason why startup fails. Co-founder. Or you're too attached to the idea. Yeah. You know, we, we started with the problem and we were like, doesn't matter how we solve, uh, solve this problem. If it's just like a fundraising problem for rare disease companies, you know, let's fix that. And so we, you know, tried so many different ideas and it all kind of like uh, narrowed down and triangulated into one. So start with the problem, not an idea. Totally. Hey, I was, I was kind of curious about the angel investment part. Uh, you guys mentioned that you accepted funding from some angels. I'm just wondering if you could share a little bit, you know, your experience with that. How did you guys meet the dynamic? You know, how did you choose? It was a good fit. What were you looking for in uh, an angel investor? Was it? Yeah, yeah, I, I love them because they are very individually very helpful, and it's like a full time job just to manage them to help you, and it's worth it. So you know, basically, they don't know when you need help, and you need to communicate what you need help with specifically. So, for example, we were looking for a medical advisor with th- these specific criteria, but. We can't just, you know, we have to spend time with them trying to tell them why we need this person, what he or she would do, and, you know, they would introduce us. But you have to spend time being thoughtful about what you want. Uh, you can't be lazy about it. So in a sense, that's managing. Um, I'd say, like, in the beginning, you start with angels and then you move to funds. But um, in our case, we sort of did that, but it was more, you know, you, you had the f- couple of funds and then you started having the angels in. We were just optimizing for people who knew the space. Uh, we were trying to think we're such a complex company. We're like a consumer product. We're a research company. We're also a pharma company, data company. So, you know, we needed people who had a lot of experience in pharma and a consumer in tech, marketing, regulatory, you know, so just wanted the whole range. So we kind of went overboard, but we have like 25 angel investors, but it's amazing. Like it's, it's like a huge family that helps. And people like the CTO of Twitter and CEOs of big digital health companies and people that could be super helpful. What about advisors and stuff? Do you kind of, uh, I, do you group them as advisors and, and angels? Did you also start finding a good advisor and go through the process that you guys went through? Yeah, we haven't set up like a formal advisory board yet. We have a scientific advisor uh, and a regulatory advisor, but we're really right now we're being trying to be more thoughtful about that. We treat all of our investors as our advisors. Um, and I think if we really start, you know, pinging them every single day, then we really should rethink that relationship. But I think your investors should be your advisors always. You know, they shouldn't just be investing and never want to talk to you again. Uh, most of uh, our angels and, and non-angels, you know, like reach out and often we're kind of talking to them week on week, but it's kind of your responsibility to give them updates too. So this is what I mean by managing. Like you have to kind of, prov- you have to do your share as well. And I mean, we, we connected you to Abigail, right? Yep. Yep. And she's, she's been like a phenomenal communications advisor in terms of like, how do you tell your story? How do you like think about building your brand? So we kind of have, um, 
for our advisors are kind of in like three buckets, like people that are very, very focused on like marketing and branding, people that are very focused on e-commerce, um, and then people that are very focused on manufacturing. That, and we, it's the same thing for our angel investors. They either, they have one of those three expertise. Um, so having the right balance for both on our advisor front. And honestly, like the way we chose advisors were people that like were willing to invest the time and really care about the mission and vision. And then there's like some of our, our angel investors, like Kat Cole, she's the president of Focus Brand. And um, she runs Cinnabon, Auntie Annie, Shotsky's, et cetera. And like, she still is like willing to meet with me every month and have a one hour call and talk through whatever challenges, marketing challenges that I have. So we've had angel investors who also end up kind of being more um, very, very active. And then, um, and all of our advisors are, give us at least a couple hours a week. So, Well, I have a question for Tio. Um, so both of these entrepreneurs, uh, just raised some money are now hiring early team, you know, recruiting is your, uh, expertise among, among a few others. What's your advice for, for these entrepreneurs and others who are, who are looking to build, you know, early teams, bring on early engineers. What's your sort of non-obvious, uh, advice that, that they might not be considering right now? I guess I'll just answer that going for the non-obvious choice. Yeah. <laughs> That's the non-obvious advice. Um, so. Not just because we're here, you know, at the Serbian Entrepreneurs event, but uh, in my previous startup as well, I had engineering teams across three continents. And I think that outside of the Bay Area, there's a reason why I want to be here because of this, you know, capital and BS network. Uh, but in terms of uh, uh, talent, that's universally spread. And if you are, if you can just believe that. Um, and, you know, I think it's really important to, uh, I think right now, given given how much a dollar goes and how far a dollar goes here, really be thoughtful about from the get-go deciding whether or not you want to start building in uh, uh, a culture that allows for flexibility so you can hire you know, dads and moms like you know, dads like myself uh, so you can uh, uh, maybe allow for more work, maybe for uh, people uh, in different time zones. Just be thoughtful about what it is that makes a company and I see a lot of, and I went through this, you know, and I think I only got started to get this right in my fourth startup. That used to be only about like the butts in the seat, you know, like everybody there grinding it out and just like that's not simply a way to get stuff done. It doesn't work for cramming an exam. Uh, and like if you're not a person who's doing the all matters in, in the college, you should not even do this startup. And if you are, you should probably look for a just for Yeah, totally. And my, and my company is called Long Term, so. They want, to, they want to have a sustainable uh, uh, company culture, and that only starts when you actually are, are hiring your first people. Um, and and, and you're the first people you hire are basically like a mirror. And it's really surprising to see. Yeah. And how big is long term stock exchange right now in terms of people? You have 17 coming on 18 full time, so you have just as many remote contractors. Cool. But I say that from the get go down in all the, the founding team, they all, they all have side things, families, uh, complex lives, and we uh, set up for flexibility from the get-go. Their mission and values matter, not, you know, how you're doing the work exactly, which is against them. Right. Very cool. Yeah, we, we actually have a, I mean, we have half my team in India. Um, so, <laughs> so I think being very flexible in communication and what works, um, I think communication styles has been the biggest learning um, experience for me is like with, with my India team, it's only like 
hundred percent of our communications is on WhatsApp. Um, like every important thing happens on WhatsApp versus like my team here, there's no WhatsApp communication. Um, so, um, everything's very like scheduled and organized here versus in India. It's always just like, call me in the middle of the night, call me whatever, text me. Um, so I think that's been probably been along the lines of flexibility, just like understanding and adapting to different people's, uh, work styles has been, um, has been huge. We do a lot of cold LinkedIn outreaches. You know, you kind of have a, get a sense of their profile, whether they might be a good fit, that, you know, that might be a bad filter or a good filter. Uh, and then when you find someone, even though they're not available, you just sell them <laughs> and you take them to dinner and you write really heartfelt emails and things like that. Um, so yeah. And then you get them surprisingly. Um, people can be sold. <laughs> cool. Uh, please give a round of applause for Nancy and Rita. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 